What has happened to a nation that used to fear the Lord? To a people whose foundation was built upon God's word. We've allowed the world's opinion to chart a different way. But it's time the church of Jesus Christ should boldly stand and say, God's word will stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plans. God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men. God's word will stand. They can take it from the courthouse walls, remove it from the schools, teach our children that we're animals, speak against the golden rule. Try and hide our Christian heritage from the public eye. But they'll never overcome God's word, no matter how they try. God's word will stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plans. God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men god's word will stand it is forever settled to evermore endure is the only way a sinner's heart could ever be made stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plans. God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men. God's word will stand. God's word will stand. God's word will stand. Good. Well, amen. Aren't we glad his word will stand? As it says in the song, it's forever settled in heaven. Amen. Basically, they talk about, well, you got the originals. We never had them to begin with. They were always in heaven. We just got copies. And they're still there, amen? They're still there. And they're going to be there forever, amen? Never change. That's good. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. We're going to kick off there. Again, we're in the midst of our missions conference week, a month, and uh, we'll be having starting missions conference next Sunday morning. 
And of course, we'll have with us uh, Evangelist Booth, and he'll be sharing with us from the Word of God, and we're excited about what God's going to do. He'll be with us on Sunday, and then uh, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday as well, 7 o'clock each of those evenings. Looking forward to just a great week uh, of preaching. And then, of course, the following week, we'll be taking up our Faith Promise Missions offering, that kind of thing. But as you can see, the flags are around the, uh, the auditorium somewhat, and we're just... Uh, trying to focus our attention. Last week we began a, uh, a message on uh, biblical missions, what hinders or hampers, hampers missions today, what's holding it back, if you will. Uh, and so today we're going to kind of continue with that message and try to get through it, or at least a portion of it. And so I want to begin right at the beginning in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. The Bible simply says, "'Go ye therefore and teach all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. <clears throat> we know that without you we can do nothing. You're the vine, we're simply the branches, and we come to you asking that you would just do a mighty work in our hearts and lives. I need you today, without a doubt, Lord, uh, except uh, you give me something today. I have nothing to give this thy people. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to fill me with your Holy Ghost. Allow me to be your mouthpiece. Stand in my shoes. And, Father, may you just anoint every listening ear that they may hear with spiritual ears. Oh, how we desperately need you today. I just ask that you would, again, walk these aisles and speak to our hearts in a way that only you can. Or it doesn't do any good for us to simply know something in our head. We must take that truth from our head to our hearts. And then, Lord, and then to our hands. Too many times, Lord, we're trying to operate and function, simply be out of knowledge. But, Lord, you need to drive home a truth in our hearts. It needs to become our own, our very own. Help us, Lord, today to understand the responsibility that we have as individuals as well as a church in this area of missions. Be glorified now in this service. And Father, do that work in each life that's necessary and needful. Father, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. If there be any that are still lost without Jesus Christ here, will you seek them out and save them? We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So in the book of Matthew, we see here our marching orders. We see what's called the Great Commission. And again, we addressed much of this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time but as we go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Again, we find this uh, aspect of missions being stated. It's a commission, if you will. It's our marching orders. And prior to Jesus Christ ascending to go back to be with the Father, he makes sure that his disciples understand what the church's purpose is and what the reason for their remaining behind was. And it was simply to extend the gospel to a world that was in need of Jesus Christ. The fact is, is that the, the, the apostles, the early church, would preach the resurrected Christ. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, especially early on, there were people that were extremely upset about that fact. You are welcome to believe in God all you want, just do not promote Jesus Christ. And that was something that they did not appreciate, nor did they like. And as a result of that, we see that many, many believers in those days were persecuted. Many of them found themselves locked up and separated from family and home and relatives. They saw themselves going into the Colosseum, being chewn up and eaten by lions. We know that that kind of thing took place because historically it's been proven and documented. 
Jesus would instruct his disciples to wait on the Holy Ghost. And he would tell them, you just stay put, you stay in the city. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You go back and you just wait for the Holy Spirit. And we know in Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit of God came. We call that day Pentecost. And at that day, not only did the Holy Ghost come down and uh, anoint those believers and they preached the gospel with great power and unction, but we see that 3,000 people came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and were baptized. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 13. Turn to Acts chapter 13 if you have your Bible. And we're going to see that although the, the gospel began to spread in the, in the city and although Jerusalem was being inundated and saturated with the truth of the word of God, the fact was is that God's intention, as we saw in Acts chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 28, was to go around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough that a city was being reached. God wanted a world to be reached. And how was he going to accomplish that? Well, look at Acts chapter 13. We're going to see the method employed or how the gospel would be sent. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, the Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius and Cyrene and uh, Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and uh, uh, the Holy Ghost said, or as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We see that uh, Barnabas and Saul are chosen out. The Holy Spirit puts his finger on them and the local church agrees and says, You're not a kidding, Lord. Those are some tremendous choices to go forth with the gospel. And they sent those two men out into the world. They began to go out and reach out across the Roman Empire. And it continued to spread farther and farther as others picked up the mantle and carried on the work. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, as the Bible says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. So it's, it's kind of like we are to reproduce ourselves in the lives of others. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has forgiven us and saved us and washed us in the blood of the Lamb. And now we are part of the family of God and have a reservation in heaven. Our salvation is secure. Our home in heaven is secure. It has nothing to do with our own personal work or effort. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on Calvary that day. But the fact is is that now we are to go forth and take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very gospel that saved our souls, and share it with others that are in need of him. The Bible is giving, is giving us a, a recipe now. What you now have received, you are to share with someone else, who then can take what they received from you and share it with someone else, and so forth and so on. Every good parent in this room is doing their very best to try to pass on the positive and productive characteristics and qualities of their own life, the good choices that they've made, uh, the good wisdom that they may have accumulated through the years to their children. Why? Because they want their children to prosper. They want their children to experience the blessings that they themselves have had. 
And God's saying, listen, if you've experienced any blessing because of the salvation that came through Jesus Christ and you being a child of God now know that heaven's your home and you have been blessed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost in your life, then I want you to give that to someone else who then can give it to someone else who can give it to someone else so that the gospel spreads across the globe because the name of Jesus is worthy of our praise and his name is to be praised. And so that is the goal, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that uh, Paul would remind the Romans of that great need to send preachers to the farthest reaches of the world with the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, the word preacher definitely addresses, and we know from titles here, oh, a guy that stands behind a pulpit and proclaims the word of God, the preacher of the house of God, the pastor. Yeah, but that word preacher is a proclaimer. Somebody that can proclaim the truth of the gospel. Can I tell you, you can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be a teenager, and you can proclaim the gospel. You can be a child and proclaim the gospel. He said, man, there's going to have to be some proclaimers. There's got to be some preachers, people that will go out with the message on purpose to reach the world. And he goes on to say, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Man, it just being, becomes more clear all the time that the church begins here in Jerusalem, but then all of a sudden this person that has received Christ is teaching this person about Christ and about the need of salvation, not only in their life, but then also the need for Christ in their life after receiving him. And then they turn around in turn and give that truth and those, those, those uh, uh, principles to the next person and the next person. Eventually he says, now we got to reach the world. So how are we going to do that? We got to send some people out. They got to go into all the corners of the earth and proclaim this wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're going to reach the world, then we must go to the world. We can't expect the world to come to us. we got to go to the world. And so if we're going to fulfill the mission that Christ has entrusted to us, then we must send out others who will preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, as the Bible says. Sounds pretty simple, right? Well, unfortunately, there are some obstacles that have hindered this mission that we call missions. We're going to take up an offering in a few weeks and we're going to try to do our best to accumulate some funds so that we can continue to support the missionaries that we already have on the field and also uh, support new ones and new projects and new uh, 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 things that can ultimately affect the kingdom of God in a positive way. Well, unfortunately, there are some obstacles that have hindered that mission. And so that's what I've been addressing last week and now this week. What hampers or hinders missions today? Well, last week we said changing values are hindering and hampering missions. D.L. Moody once said, Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. That's a pretty good statement, isn't it? He wasn't a bad preacher. He was all right. The Bible, they say that he shook two continents for the Lord. They claim that over a million people probably came to salvation through the ministry of D.L. Moody. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Without realizing it, we said that we've redefined success today in our culture. 
Success is living comfortably both financially and recreationally. That seems to me to be kind of a simplification of what, of what success is today. You know, how, how successful are you? Well, I, I have a big house and a nice car, and man, I can take three vacations a year, and I've even got a home down by the lake. Now listen, I, I'm not opposed to that. You want to give any of it up, give it to me, I'll take it. Okay, you know what I'm saying? I, I, just don't misunderstand what we're saying here. But by the same token, although there's nothing wrong inherently with the things or recreation, the believer must be careful to not make the pursuit of such things our purpose for living. We've got to be careful. Over in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Well, what is that race? It's reaching the world with the gospel. You say, yeah, but that's for the church. Well, last I checked, every member of a church, every person that attends a church, every person that's in the body of Christ that knows him as Lord and Savior is to be part of a local church and an assembly. And guess what that goal is of the church? To reach the world. And therefore, it is your responsibility, it's my responsibility, it's our responsibility to reach the world with the gospel. My greatest desire should be to see my family saved. My greatest desire ought to see others come to Jesus Christ. Not that I can live in a nice big house or that I can have a wonderful car to drive or that I can be comfortable and financially set. My real goal should be how many are coming to him. That ought to be our emphasis. Not that the other things are wrong. Don't misunderstand me. That's not a problem. But we have to be careful because weights may not be defined as sin in the word of God here. But they can become sinful for us when they replace God's intended purpose for our lives. Listen, you guys just don't have a clue, but I like to golf. Matter of fact, I'm extremely good. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm not. But, 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 but listen, I haven't golfed in quite a few years. Now, part of it has to do with a bad back, and then the other part has to do with other things. But anyway, the fact is, is that we all like certain things, don't we? I mean, let's face it, there's wonderful things, and there's nothing wrong with going out and golfing. There's nothing wrong with playing a little softball or nothing wrong with, with uh, going out on the boat. Man, I love going out on the boat, you know. I love stuff like that, but hold on. That can't become our goal, is it? That can't be what we live for. We're believers. We ought to have a different purpose now. We've been, we've been delivered out of the world, he says, and we've been placed into Jesus Christ. And our purpose is no longer to serve self. It's to serve our master, Jesus Christ. The changing value system has affected the outlook and perspective of a generation that has seriously hampered the surrender rate of our young men. A lot of our young men don't want to go into the ministry because they're like, why would I want to do that? I mean, is there a lot of money in it? Do you get to relax a lot? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the uh, lightning to strike. Uh, it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not all bad. Don't misunderstand me. I love being in the ministry. But there's an element of sacrifice there. Without a doubt there is. 
Listen, by the way, if you own a business today and you started your own business, there was a sacrifice in getting that off the ground and making it run right. Anything worth having is worth working at. And let me tell you something, the goal of the gospel to be taken to the world is worth working at. It's an eternal goal. It's, it's something that, uh, a purpose that is eternal. And, and there'll be dividends paid for eternity, not just in this world and in this life, but the one to come. But that changing value system has affected the outlook and perspective of a generation. It seriously hampered the surrender rate of our young men. So what hinders and hampers missions today? Well, changing values. But then, here we go with the new stuff. Countless vacancies. Countless vacancies. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 22, would you? Ezekiel chapter 22. That's one of them Old Testament prophets. His book ain't too hard to find. It's pretty big. Ezekiel chapter 22. Let's look at verse 30. When, you, when we start reading this verse, many of you are going to go, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Especially around missions time. Look at what Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 says. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking on behalf of God and he says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Judah had turned their back on God. Of course, we remember that Israel uh, was one nation, but then remember uh, after the death of Solomon, it split. And now you had Israel and you had Judah. Well, this is speaking of Judah. Israel has already gone into Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. Now we have Judah who is flirting with uh, sin and the, and the world and idolatry. And as a result of that, now here they are on the verge of being taken captive by the Babylonians in, five, in 606 B.C. Judah has turned their back on God. Her priest openly violated the law of God. I mean, these are supposed to be men of God, and yet they're disobeying the word of God. Her leaders, or princes as they're called in the word of God, had ceased to serve the people, and instead they were serving themselves and their own interests. Sound familiar? Good had become evil. Evil had become good. The righteous were being punished, and the wicked were being praised. Even the prophets... They were corrupt. They were preaching a false message. They were saying, oh, everything's fine. We're, we're getting along just fine. It's all right. It's good. When in reality, that was not the message God was sending at all. We know that from the message of Jeremiah and also Ezekiel. The real prophets of God were saying, no, 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 no. Because of your idolatry, because of your sinfulness, because you've even offered your children on the altar of Molech. You literally let your children die on behalf of an altar to an idol. Let me tell you something, I am not happy with you and I'm going to allow some things into your lives to ultimately wake you up and bring you back and that means Babylonian captivity. So you know what you need to do? Submit to them because the harder you fight against them, the more you resist, it's only going to be worse in the long run. Oh, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, the false prophets say so, but unfortunately they were wrong, of course. 
As a result, there was very little hope for the nation. So God is speaking now. God's saying, as a result of all this, and I sought for a man among them that, that, that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. See, as a nation, Judah had forgotten God. And as a result, they gradually became their own God. And they began to disobey God's word. And they began to mistreat other people and, and, and take God's gifts for granted. Isn't that funny how that turns out? It happens in every generation that chooses to forget God. When we choose to forget God in our lives, we become our own gods. We determine and decide what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We decide what's right for us, what isn't right for us. What we deserve, what we don't deserve, we do that because we become the God. When we set real God, creator God aside, we make ourselves the God. And then comes rebellion, disobedience, and every other thing that comes along with it or goes along with it. So what was God looking for here? He was searching for a man. A man who would obey and follow him. A man who would stand for truth and right. A man who was willing to stand against the tide of materialism, selfishness, and greed. A man who would place the calling of God above the comfort and convenience of the gods of this world or leisure. A man who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap, providing protection from the vicious attack of Satan. And also provide a line of communication between heaven and earth, between God and man. That's what he's looking for. You know, I believe God's still looking for a man. A man to make up the hedge. A man to stand in the gap. You know, when the Midianites oppressed the people, God found Gideon. When David had sinned and committed murder, God found Nathan. When Pharaoh oppressed the children of Israel, God found Moses. When Goliath stood and defied the armies of the living God, God found a shepherd boy by the name of David. Throughout history, God has found a man. Martin Luther was that man at one point in history. George Mueller, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, David Livingston, Billy Sunday, and let's, let me tell you, even Billy Graham. We have seen God find a man in our own city, a man by the name of Dallas Billington. God sought for a man and God is continuing to seek for a man. Where are those who will stand in the gap and make up the hedge? Who are those who will leave house and home and head across land and sea in order to reach the lost in foreign lands? The changing value system, we said, has affected the outlook and perspective of a generation. It's definitely affected the surrender rate of our young men, but... This sin-sick, selfish, and sensual culture in which we live is also responsible for other problems that hinder and hamper missions. Say, so what do you mean? Well, because of those changing values, we see declining church bases. A declining church base. What I mean is there are less churches today, therefore there are less churches to support missionaries that need to go around the world with the gospel. Every year, more than 4,000 churches close their doors compared to just 1,000 new churches starting. Some estimates place the number even as high as 7,000 churches closing their doors. As we see more and more churches closing their doors, there's going to be less and less churches supporting missionaries. That hinders 
missions. That hinders the calling of God upon the house of God, the church of God. Not only that, but because of those changing values, we see a declining membership base. As a whole, as we look at churches across this country, there are, they're, 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 with that declining membership base, meaning less members, there's also less dollars available for missions then. Now listen, money's not what it's all about. You say, well, pray to your God for it. Yeah, we are, and we're gotta, we better do more of that praying. But let me tell you something. The house of God remains open because the people of God are obedient to God's plan of giving. One person doesn't make it all happen. And God uses individuals. He uses his people. And we see that the more people there are that are inclined to give, the more dollars there'll be for missions. The more ability we'll have to reach the gospel, uh, reach the world with the gospel. 63% of Americans identify as Christian today. 63%. Now, it doesn't mean they're Baptists. It just means they're Christian in their faith. They believe in Christ. But that marks, just that alone, 63%, marks a 15-point drop in the last 14 years, according to Pew Research. Before, 78% called themselves Christians in 2007. So let's see, wait, that's actually, I've got the statistic I have there. It's not 14 years. It would have been the last uh, 15, 14, you know what I'm saying. 16 years, thank you. The decline of Christians in the U.S. has been matched by a rise in the religiously unaffiliated. Today we have a religiously unaffiliated group, they call it now. Their number has almost doubled since 2007. It's gone from 16 to 30%. That are unaffiliated. I just want nothing, I have nothing to do with any organized religion at all. That's doubled. The decline of Christians in the U.S. has been matched. That's amazing. By the rise of the religiously unaffiliated. That's crazy. Do you realize only 47% of Americans are members of a house of worship now? 47%. That's less than 50% of Americans. That marks the first time since Gallup began collecting data in 1937 that a majority of Americans aren't part of a church, synagogue, or mosque. That's amazing. Religious membership was, un, was very stable, it says, through the 20th century. But it fell from 70% in 2000 to 47% in 2020. You think about that. That's amazing. And not only that, but congregations are growing statistically older. 17% of Americans are 65 and older. And yet 33% of U.S. congregations are senior citizens. And so you walk into most churches, at least, minimum, of 33% are senior citizens. But what's really happening is, is that there are churches where virtually all the people in the church are senior citizens, which let me tell you something, it's hard to find missionaries out of that group. And can I tell you, on, on budgets that are fixed, it's hard to support missions. So not only are congregations growing older, Guess what? Their leaders are too. The average clergy member is 57 today compared to 50 in the year 2000. Again, that points to less young people going into ministry while the older ones simply pass off the scene. Not a good picture for missions. Not looking good for the reaching the gospel around the world. Again, we've got an issue here with countless vacancies. 
See, the sad reality is, is that 7 in 10 U.S. churches have 100 or fewer weekly worship service attendees. Half of all churches have fewer than 65, 65 people in their weekly worship services. Approximately 80% of all churches in North America have reached a plateau or are declining. They're going backwards now. There's precious little conversion rates. Researchers say that probably there's somewhere between 1% and 3% of new members are actually those that have received and accepted Christ as a result of evangelism or outreach. The rest are just simply transfer growth. That's alarming. So what's all this mean? It means that deputation takes longer, which leads to discouragement, disappointment, even depression. Some quit before they even get to the field now. The average missionary makes about 100 to 150 phone calls to schedule one meeting at a church. They have to schedule about four meetings in order to gain one supporting church. The average monthly support by churches, this is kind of a, an amazing statistic to me, they claim it's only $50 a month. Let's say that the average support of a missionary family needs $5,000 a month to meet their needs. If these numbers represent the average, here's what they really mean. Each missionary family needs 100 supporting churches. Now, I want you to think about how many phone calls that is. Think about how many meetings that is. They have to visit several hundred churches. It takes them three or more years to ultimately gain support needed to go to the field. What's all of it mean? Countless vacancies. It means that our mission fields are rapidly declining in the amount of workers that are on them. There's, a, uh, uh, there's just attrition that is taking place. More coming off the field, less are going onto the field. How are we going to get this job done? What's hindering and hampering the call of God to the church, the call of God to us as individuals? What's keeping the world from being reached with the gospel? Changing values. And of course, countless vacancies. You say, what's the answer? Well, where God is, there's great hope. Where God is, there's great hope. William Carey made a statement. He said, I'm a dreamer and continue to dream of what can and will be. He goes on to say, expecting great things from God, attempting great things for God. Oh yeah, there are some challenges that we face today. Sure, there are some things that hinder missions. I understand that there are changing values and countless vacancies, but may we never forget the words of Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China in the late 1800s. He said, I found that there are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Second, then it's difficult. And third, then it's done. May we not shy away from the seemingly impossible Oh, I'm discouraged. I just, why even give to missions if we're not going to really accomplish the goal of Jesus Christ to reach the world with the gospel? If there's some reason we may not actually succeed. Can I ask you, who do we need on our side to help us to be successful? 
I'm going to tell you what, it's not some Bill Gates or somebody with a lot of money in our world. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My friend, money does not have to be a problem for God, and people don't have to be a problem for God. He can do all things. With God, all things are possible. 2,000 years ago, the God of this world, creator of the universe, found himself in a world where you would have thought his creation would have received and accepted him, but instead they rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him, and ultimately there they cried, crucify him, crucify him, and they placed him on a cross, and there with his hands, with the nails in his hands and his feet, he's suffering between heaven and earth, excruciating pain, pulsing through his body, blood dripping down, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He accomplished the impossible that day. Can you imagine, would you be able to forgive someone while you hung on an old cross, suffering, suffering without cause? Jesus did. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. And if we simply call on him and trust and receive him as our Lord, he will forgive and save us. That precious blood that was spilled ultimately ends up on the mercy seat of Christ. And you say, how'd that happen? You read about it, my friend. I don't have all the answers. But then again, I don't know how the Red Sea was held back. And I don't know how 120-pound uh, uh, balls came out of heaven that were ice balls, if you will, or, or huge. I mean, I wouldn't want that to fall in my house. You know, you get, I don't know. Have you ever had a, a hailstorm? And you ever see those golf ball size ones? I watched it come down one year right outside the church and I was praying for it. Hit them hard. Come on now, a little bigger. I was safe inside. My car was getting pelted, but that insurance was going ding, 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 ding. And man, I mean to tell you when it was all said and done, every roof in the entire church and the whole properties was taken care of, act of God. You say, where'd your money come from? Him. Oh, no, it was that insurance company. No, it wasn't. It was God. He knew we needed a roof. Let me tell you, we did. Over $100,000 worth of roofs were put on our buildings back then, and that was 15, 20 years ago. Oh, God, money's not a problem for God. Situations can be resolved and handled. We got a God who went, into that, went on that cross and died and was buried, and the Bible says he rose again the third day. Death couldn't even keep him in the grave. He's alive today, seated at the right hand of the heavenly Father, making intercession on behalf of you and me, his children. And that's why when I pray, he hears me. And that's why when you pray, he hears you. Because he's alive today. I don't know if you put your faith and trust in him. That's what missions is about. That's why we proclaim the truth. That's why we exist. We had a wonderful time at our, our community uh, fest. Just a few weeks back. Hundreds and hundreds of people on our property. But you know where the real ministry took place? Right here. The souls walked aisles and trusted Christ as their Savior. Oh, that was all put in place for one reason. So that Jesus Christ would be elevated, lifted up, that he may draw all men unto him. And when people bowed their knee and trusted him and said, I can't get to heaven myself. I'm such a sinner. I deserve hell. But you died for me and took my place. You will wash my sin away. You paid the penalty by dying for me on Calvary. I want you as my Savior and I invite you in my life. Well, there's the victory. And that's what we're trying to accomplish through missions. We want to do that 
around the world. Today you might be here and you've never bowed before the God of heaven and said, I know I deserve hell. I know I'm a sinner. The Bible says, for all sin that comes short of the glory of God. Let me tell you, none of us can measure up to his perfect standard. But fortunately, we don't have to. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. See, the wages of sin is death. Death, defined in the book of Revelation, is and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. That there's physical death, and then there's a spiritual death to be eternally separated from God. He took care of it. He literally died on the cross paying for your sin so that you don't have to be separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. What a wonderful truth that is. The resurrected Savior. If Jesus died and went in a grave and never came out, we'd be wasting our time today. But he rose again. He rose again. Our brother John Watson most of you know him. He'd stand outside there and he'd greet people and have them help him into the house of God. Years, he'd been in his place. Years, he served the Lord. Amen. He died this morning at 8.30. This is morning he died. He went into the hospital on a Thursday night having pain in his stomach. They found that he was bleeding internally. They couldn't stop the bleeding after giving him 30, 30 pints of blood. See, that's terrible, and it is terrible. It's tragic. Because I have this hope. I can stand in front of you today with the loss of a wonderful friend and still preach the gospel with authority and power. Why? Because I know this isn't the end. Because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, I know that John's as alive today as he's ever been, and even more so. And I'll see him again, and so will you. He'll never... Open that door again. But heaven's door opened for him this morning. Somebody was like, come on in, John. And Jesus was there going. And then he looked over his shoulder and he heard his family. He said, Lord, this is better than I ever dreamed. Do you know Christ is your Savior? God help us to keep our priorities straight. To remember there's an eternity that awaits. And may we prepare individually for eternity, but may we also invest in eternity after we've settled our soul salvation. Let's make some investments for tomorrow. Investments that will not be burned up when the world burns away, according to Peter. But investments that will last an eternity. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had together in the word of God. And we thank you, Father, for just the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We need you so much. And we just want to thank you for oh, the privilege to be able to receive and accept you as our Lord and Savior. We're asking that you will meet our need now, that you will continue to work in our lives. In this room, Lord, there may be those that have yet to receive and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, they might believe in God, but Lord, they need to believe in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they must accept the fact that you alone can pay for their sin.
Father, help us, Lord. If they don't have that settled, if they can't say for sure heaven's their home, may they settle it before it's eternally too late. There'll be no baptism. There's no church membership. There's no deed that they can do that will ultimately earn them your favor. They must simply trust in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. Oh, God, help us, we pray. And for the believer, help us to get eternally minded. Lord, may we focus our attention on heaven and not just earth. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every